Good evening. My name is Barbara Ferguson, and I'm delighted that you diehards have stayed here this evening after two long days of so many thought-provoking ideas. It's wonderful that you are staying with us for the last session, which I think is going to be extremely interesting, uh, knowing, uh, knowing the cast of characters that will be speaking to you. Um, I just want to go quickly over the fact that uh, interesting developments happened yesterday. The UN Middle East Quartet representative uh, envoy, Tony Blair, held talks in Jerusalem and Ramallah trying to convince the Israelis and Palestinians to resume negotiations, um, a mission which has given added urgency by the looming vote on Palestinian membership in the UN, which we have talked about threats over the panel discussions today. The quartet of Middle East uh, peace negotiators, the U.S., Russia, the European Union, and the United Nations, fears that the Palestinian bid could further unravel the peace process and isolate Israel. So what a great uh, panel to be able to discuss this and toss this around today. Um, Ambassador Hasuna, I don't think I need to introduce him much. Uh, he's such a well-known figure in Washington as the chief representative of the League of Arab States at the U.N., and significantly, he's a member of the UN International Law Commission. Uh, I would like to talk to you a bit about Bill Cochran because he's president of one of my favorite organizations in Washington or in the United States, ANIRA, the American Near East Refugee um, Aid. For, he's been president for the last four years, and ANIRA has done some astonishing things for the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. They've delivered over $65 million in projects in the last fiscal year, but their regional specialists uh, focus not only in Gaza and the West Bank, but also Lebanon and Jordan. And uh, recently I learned that many of the uh, specialists that are driving into, uh, into the West Bank are being attacked by settlers because they have Palestinian license plates. ANIR is expanding its programs for early childhood development in the West Bank, which is really important when you think that about two-thirds of the children there are malnourished. And over the summer, USAID had awarded ANIRA a $2.7 million grant uh, for the ECD in Gaza and another $5 million for water and sanitation in the West Bank. So you know ANIRA is doing something well and doing it um, in a very fair and balanced manner when you have the U.S. government supporting them. John Moran, a man after in my own heart, he's been in Saudi Arabia, served as a member of State Department's Senior Foreign Service for a long time, three assignments in Saudi Arabia. He speaks Arabic and French. He's also served in Kuwait, Bahrain, and Morocco, and Tunisia. Uh, he most recently worked as Counselor for Public Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh. Our final um, speaker, George Hishma, has not shown. I had heard rumors that he wasn't going to be able to make it, and unfortunately he won't. I always like to have another journalist up here on the panel to stir things up, but I'm sure that the three of them will manage to carry on very well. Thank you. Please support them and listen to what they have to say. I think you'll be quite impressed. Bye-bye. Why don't you... Yeah. Good evening, everyone. Well, it's great to see you around after such a long day of discussions about the Middle East. Um, it's always wonderful for the U.S. Council on U.S. Arab Relations to organize these annual events. It's an occasion for those interested in our region 
to understand what's going on, to analyze the developments, and sometimes to change perceptions about the region, which you don't get always from the media. Um, I, I'd like to thank Ms. Ferguson for introducing us, and I'd like to share with you some of my views as an Egyptian, an Arab, who comes from the Arab region and who is proud of it. Historically, our region was the cradle of civilizations, the birthplace of main religions, and today it is the scene of a historic transformation. A new dynamic has arisen there, and some people call it uprising, revolt. I would look at it as an awakening of the Arab people that hopefully will lead to an Arab Renaissance, the kind of Renaissance we had in the 19th century and, and the beginning of the century, that uh, how our region became a source of inspiration to the people of the region and even to the outside world. So let me share with you a little bit about how I see events in the region. First of all, I think we have to be reminded that what some people call the Arab Spring is a very recent development. It only started nine months ago. So it's difficult to assess now where it's going, if it is succeeding, and what are all the implications. It is still an ongoing process. Day after day, you see changes, you see developments. So it is difficult, but certainly there is light at the end of the tunnel. Certainly the trends we are seeing today in the, in, in the Arab region are irreversible. There's a new, a new culture, a new momentum. And of course it depends on each country. There is a kind of specificity. You cannot generalize. People all, all say, well, it's all the same. No, it depends on each country. What system of government it has. Is it a monarchy? Is it a republic? Um, is, it, uh, uh, is it a tribal society? What kind of minorities exist? What kind of system of government? Uh, what kind of even resources do exist in each country? So it's a complex picture. And, and it's sometimes, for me, it's surprising when people simplify and saying, well, the whole region is changing this direction or the other. It is not. But there are some common features. The common features are that the people of the region are calling for universal human rights. They don't have a local agenda. They're calling for universal human rights. They're calling for democracy. They're calling for justice. They're calling for human dignity. But also they're calling for economic rights. They're calling for bridging of divides between the rich and the poor. They're calling for social justice, economic justice, the right to have a job, the right to have a housing, the right to have health care, and so on. And 
What is also a common feature is that all the struggle of the people has been taken place through peaceful means. Yes, in Libya there was a civil war at one point, but mainly it has been taken through peaceful means. In Egypt, in, 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 in Yemen, in, uh, in Syria also, in, in other countries, in Bahrain, those who are asking for rights have not resorted to force. They have used peaceful means. Has it had an impact? It certainly had an impact, not only on the region. I think it had an impact on the whole world because it has inspired many other movements in the world. Today, if you follow what's going on in, in, in New York, in Wall Street, in London, in Madrid, they all mention the movement that was so obvious in Tahrir Square, the movement of people getting together, young and old, men and women, Muslim and Christians, all standing for the same goals, the same aspirations. And people caught this when you see. Maybe this movement also in the Arab world was inspired by other movements in the world beforehand. The civil march in the United States for civil rights. Maybe also those movements in Eastern Europe. So it is a dynamic uh, movement that has been inspired and is inspiring other movements. But what is also interesting is that it has changed the perception of people towards the Arab world. People used to look at Arabs uh, being passive, accepting the status quo. Sometimes also they would say that an Arab society cannot uh, accept the values of a democratic state. All this has been dispelled now, and people see that the Arabs are looking for change, the Arabs are embracing democracy, are embracing human rights, and have the power to bring about change. What are the political implications of, of all this? You've seen what is happening, for instance, in Egypt. There is an internal reform, elections are planned for next month in November. There will be a new multi-party system. There are about 40 new parties now. Uh, there will be a uh, new constitution drafted after the parliament opens in March, and then elections for uh, the presidency. So everywhere now there is change in, in Tunisia. Over the weekend there was an election that was transparent, that was peaceful, and again it, it shows you how a, a new country uh, can, can emerge and, 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 and follow the, the aspiration of, of, of so many of its people and bring about a new system of government. Many challenges remain. Democracy is not easy, especially when it's a young democracy. And democracy doesn't mean just going to the elections. Democracy is a culture. People have to change the perceptions they have. People have to respect each other's opinion, even if they differ with, with each other. And there are still some problems between people belonging to different groups, different religion, different uh, sects. And it takes time to rebuild the country. For instance, what happened in Libya after the civil war, it needs 
really now to focus on rebuilding the whole country and also reconciling those who were fighting the old system and those who were remnants of the, of the old system. So it's, it's, a, it's a complicated process and it needs support, support from the region and support from everywhere in the world. And all these changes have economic implications. For instance, it has been estimated that the economic losses uh, of all these uh, changes in, in the Arab world uh, might reach $55 billion. But in the long run, the gains and the benefits are priceless. In new, new societies, new institutions focused on the rule of law, on accountability, on, uh, on, on coexistence between the people. These are, I think, priceless results of what hopefully will emerge. There are social implications as well. For instance, the role of the, of, of the woman in all the, those movements has been very much noticed in the streets where, where women and men were together fighting for their rights. We all know that in, in Yemen, for instance, there was a, a woman who recently uh, was given the Nobel Peace Prize for her struggle. And I think also the divide between the rich and the poor will, will, will narrow and, and the social justice, a better social justice will certainly prevail. And then there are strategic implications for all this. And here I'm not speaking as an Egyptian, but I think there is a general consensus among the Arab people and even in the world that what happens in Egypt is crucial for the whole region. If the revolution in Egypt succeeds, it will have its impact on the, on the rest of the region. If the revolution in Egypt fails, it will also have its negative impact on the region. And this is because Egypt is, of course, the largest Arab country, 85 million people, its strategic position, its, uh, its human resources and so on, uh, have always played an important role in uh, the developments of the whole region. And here we, we've seen also how important countries in, in, in the region view what's happening in Egypt, like Turkey. Recently, Prime Minister of Turkey, Erdogan, came to an official visit to Egypt, and he said publicly that he's very concerned about uh, events in Egypt, and that he hopes that Egypt will emerge out of uh, this uh, process as, as a stronger state, as a more diplomatic state, as a more stable state, because it also will affect the position of, of Turkey in the region. And Turkey wants to work with Egypt uh, as, as, as the leading, leading powers uh, to, to, to help the, the, the region and, and to support the aspiration of its people. Also, you've, see, you've seen some solidarity between the monarchies in the region emerging. The Gulf Cooperation Council has, for instance, invited Jordan and Morocco to join and to build a stronger relationship. And then an important aspect of all this is the relationship between the new revolutions and Israel. Certainly, 
there is an increasing role of public opinion in shaping the relationship between the Arab world and, and Israel. Before this, it was the leaders who decided what kind of relationship they wanted. But for the first days of the revolution in Egypt, for instance, you've seen the, the people demanding the lifting of blockade of Gaza and a stronger support to the Palestinian people in the struggle for self-determination. Egypt has taken a very clear stand. It has announced its, its firm commitment to its, the peace agreement it has concluded with Israel. Uh, but the question which is always asked, how will Egypt and the rest of the Arab world deal with Israel after these revolutions? I think the question should be addressed to Israel. How is Israel going to deal with the new uh, developments in the region? How it will accept the, the new changes? How it will engage the revolution? How it will tell the leadership in Egypt and in other Arab countries, if you are turning into a democratic state, we are ready to work with you to settle the Palestinian problem, to, uh, to engage, to, to, to create a new Middle East peace on, uh, based on, on, on justice and on cooperation. And this hasn't been coming, unfortunately. Israel has still looked at all these dramatic changes as something which uh, she's concerned about uh, how, how, to, how to accept it. It hasn't accepted the changes. So we, we do hope that it will change, that Israel, Israel will realize, just like any other state in the world, it has to accept the change, it has to deal with it, and, and it's up to her if it wants to create a better relationship with the young uh, states that have undergone these changes and revolution. I don't want to go into the negotiation on the Palestinian issue. I think uh, Ms. Ferguson just mentioned what was going on. But I can tell you that as one who has been involved in the negotiation with Israel for so many years, I've been involved in the peace process for so many years, I still think that peace is irreversible. Sooner or later there will be peace. The problem is that I don't see the political will of the president, Israeli government, to make the, the necessary compromises. And when, when the, the Israelis object to the Palestinians going to the United Nations and asking for membership, what do they object to? If you go back to the partition resolution of 1947, it has accepted a Palestinian state. The Palestinians have the right to have their state. They have the right to be members of the United Nations. The Palestinians are not trying to delegitimize Israel. They are, they are trying to, to acquire more legitimacy, more international recognition. It is their inalienable right to do so. And the whole international community is, is backing this. I know the United States has opposed it. I hope it will not do so for too long because it will then be contrary to the principles of justice, the principle of self-determination, and to the will of the international community. And if the, United, if the Palestinians cannot get the support of the Security Council, because 
a veto of the, of the United States, they can certainly go to the General Assembly and to other international organizations to get the full support of the international community. So let's hope that we get over this issue. What is the role of the Arab League? The Arab League has supported reform in, in the region since the summit of 2004 in Tunisia when it adopted this collective vision of all Arab states to undertake reform, political reform, economic reform, social reform. It was not implemented by every state. There were some efforts done, but it did not bring about a drastic change in the region. Uh, I think that the Arab League is still the, the collective vision. It is the collective forum for everyone. Sometimes people misunderstand what the Arab League is. When any initiative is taken by a member of the League or a group of states, it is finally through the Arab League that this initiative takes place and takes momentum. For instance, on the issue of, uh, of Libya, it is only when the Arab League adopted the suspension of Libya and then called for a new fly zone that the Security Council could, could, could adopt uh, this, this approach. Uh, it is also uh, through, through the Arab League that the Palestinian problem is, is also supported by the collective membership uh, of the League and that we have an Arab peace initiative that is calling for full withdrawal and uh, uh, versus recognition uh, and a comprehensive framework for a settlement. It is only through the Arab League that, for instance, there is an initiative now uh, towards Syria. A few uh, days ago, the Arab League has met in Cairo and they have taken the initiative to send a high-level delegation that was yesterday in Syria. It, was, it will meet again on Sunday with the leadership. And it has a proposal to the, to the Syrian leadership to undertake immediate reform, to stop the military crackdown, to release prisoners, uh, political prisoners. Uh, and it is the Arab League that is trying to bring an Arab solution to Arab problems. So this is sometimes misunderstood. But I also believe that the Arab League faces a dilemma because the Arab League is an intergovernmental organization and it has to try to, to evolve, to, to, in, to, to involve more the people in, in, in its working and its procedures. Uh, and I think that it, it should change also its structures. The fact of the Arab League is based on sovereignty and non-interference in, in internal affairs. But I think it must change because there, there are new developments, there, there is a new uh, scenario in, in, in the region and the Arab League has to be more able to cope with these developments and involve more the people and to take into account the aspiration of its people. Maybe they should create a court of, uh, for the protection of human rights like there is a court for the protection of human rights in the inter-American system in the European Union. Why don't we have a court for human rights in the Arab world where people can, do, can go to with their grievances where minority can go and also complain if, they have been, if the rights have been violated. I'm not uh, criticizing 
the institutions, but I think we need some creative thinking if we want the Arab League to follow up the developments in the region. Finally, I would like just to say, what do the Arabs expect from the United States? The Arabs expect from the United States to listen to the voice of the people, to understand the developments, to support the change, to encourage the change, and to help, to help through economic means, through education, through teaching about the experience of, of, of uh, democracy in this country and how it works, but not to give assistance with strings attached, not to try to interfere, to impose, to impose the model of democracy which you have in this country, because democracy and all these changes are a homegrown product, and you have to respect the will of the people. And also, I think the United States has to expect the outcome of elections when these elections are free and choose the people who will represent the different uh, groups of society. And finally, I would say that it is important for the United States to develop with the people of the region a relationship based on mutual respect and common interest. And this is what President Obama said on the first day of his inauguration. So to sum up, I think we are going through a new phase of history in the region, new dynamics, but I think there are irre irreversible trends, and in spite of many challenges remaining, I am confident that in the final analysis, the will of the people will prevail. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Your Excellency. Uh, I would just like to clarify uh, one, one thing, and that is I'm a, I'm a current member of the uh, State Department uh, Foreign Service. I'm here at the National Council uh, on detail. Uh, so with that, let me repeat the necessary uh, incantation that uh, anything I say reflects my own views. Um, I'm certainly not speaking on behalf of the uh, State Department. I think you'll probably figure that out when I, uh, when I finish talking. Um, and uh, uh, I'm responding in the context uh, of my assignment uh, to the National Council on uh, 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 U.S. Arab uh, uh, relations. Uh, I thought um, one point that Dr. Hasuna made uh, that um, uh, I would like to go back to in, in a roundabout way, and that is the influence uh, of the Arab Spring um, on events in the United States, the, uh, 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 specifically the, uh, uh, the Occupy Wall Street uh, uh, movement. Um, I, I, I deal with um, uh, public diplomacy uh, in the State Department. My last assignment, uh, uh, which ended last summer, was uh, as Counselor for Public Affairs in uh, Saudi Arabia. And I've been, I've been with uh, uh, the Council for a year, so I'm really not up to date on, on what is happening now. Uh, but my impression uh, from what I've seen um, in terms of uh, the departments, the U.S. government's response to uh, events in Egypt uh, are two things. Uh, the first is Twitter. Um, 
they saw that uh, uh, the opposition uh, kept in, in touch using uh, Twitter. Uh, so the idea was that they would do the same, uh, which is really, uh, to put it mildly, not very helpful, not very serious uh, in terms of uh, uh, the United States uh, response. What they, what they tend to do is um, take a, a segment of a speech by the secretary or the president and say, hey, look at this. Uh, and, and send it out. I mean, in, in my opinion, uh, given uh, the state of uh, what I think most Egyptians feel uh, about the United States, this is like having Muzak when you call up to complain uh, to a bank uh, uh, about your loan. It, 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 doesn't, uh, it doesn't inspire you. It makes, it makes you angry. Uh, that's one element. The other element is essentially talking points. I mean, we, we've seen this, you've seen the newspaper articles uh, about our embassy in Egypt uh, and our USAID uh, activities in, in Egypt. Well, I'm not going to go into the details of, uh, of this, but uh, suffice it to say, uh, the response of uh, the United States has been, well, let us explain all the good things uh, we've done for you. Um, in Egypt, uh, and that you know that might might make sense if in a certain context. Uh, but what I would say, based on my experience in the Arab world, uh, is the basic problem is that the majority of Egyptians simply don't believe us uh, on on anything. Um, and not only that, uh, we don't believe us. Uh, I was looking at, um, uh, of course, all the press coverage uh, on um, uh, the plot against uh, uh, His Excellency the Saudi uh, Ambassador. Uh, now, as a, as a Foreign Service officer, son of an FBI agent, yes, I, I, I accept that. Uh, but what I noticed is that most Americans do not seem to uh, accept that. If you look at the comments uh, below any store, most of the stories, USA Today, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, what I've noticed, to, to my surprise, are Americans writing in saying things like, well, here we go again. Um, you know, we're not going to be fooled. Uh, you know, who do you think you're kidding? That kind of thing. Um, even on Fox, which I, I found uh, uh, quite, uh, uh, quite remarkable. Uh, it, and not only that, uh, but I was looking at the uh, most recent um, uh, Pew Research poll, uh, which concluded that fully 80% of Americans say news organizations are often influenced by powerful people and organizations, and 66% believe that the news they get um, is inaccurate. I, I mean, think about that. Two-thirds of the population, if you accept the Pew poll, um, think uh, that uh, what they're hearing from American media um, is wrong. Uh, it does not reflect uh, 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 reality. Um, this says, I think, uh, a great deal uh, about not just the, the corporate American structure and uh, relationship with the media, um, as uh, uh, you would hear from some sources, um, 
But I think we have a crisis uh, of confidence um, not only in the Arab world, uh, but among ourselves. I think this is something that is, uh, uh, is growing. I, I was looking at some uh, figures uh, uh, earlier today on uh, Russia Today, um, uh, Al Jazeera, uh, viewership of um, uh, what is the Iranian-backed uh, uh, channel? Press TV. Um, and apparently this is, uh, this is mushroom. Uh, Secretary Clinton alluded to this uh, back in March um, uh, in terms of, uh, of an information war. And I think the point here, um, from, what I, from what I saw, uh, people are watching this in places like Washington, Los Angeles, uh, New York. I don't think it's a question of, of people being credulous. I mean, Ru uh, Russia today is obviously going to have um, and press TV, they're going to have uh, a certain direction uh, that they believe would enhances their, their image and, and, their, and their foreign affairs options. Uh, but I think people in these sophisticated markets uh, understand that. The reason, I think, uh, they are watching them uh, is because they're getting information uh, that they believe they are not getting from uh, the, uh, the American mainline uh, uh, media. Uh, so I think that is our problem, essentially, in the Middle East. Uh, uh, one of the former speakers mentioned uh, um, that we see what we want to see. I, I call it essentially magical thinking uh, in terms of, of our policy. Uh, we are not going to get, I, I mean, whatever happens, I believe, um, as a result of the Arab Spring, uh, it's not going to be Norway. Um, we're not going to see, uh, I believe, civil society institutions in, in a Western sense. I think there's a very good chance um, we could see um, uh, Islamic governments. And, and finally, uh, I, I've, I've gone on uh, too long for uh, the time I have, but I just wanted to note um, uh, one thing. Uh, and that is um, Morocco. It seems to me that the, Morocco and Egypt have a great deal in common. Let me just read you some of the poverty figures uh, from uh, the United Nations Development Program. Uh, percent of population making less than $1.25 a day. Egypt, 2%. Morocco, 2.5%. Intensity of deprivation, Egypt, 44 Morocco, 48 Percent of population living in poverty, Egypt 21.6, Morocco 28. GDP per capita as of 2008, Egypt $5,840, Morocco $4,638. Um, in, um, there's tremendous, now I know there is a difference, and I think we've, we've seen this in the Arab Spring, between a hereditary monarchy and a military uh, government, just in terms of people's loyalties, how they see themselves in the cultural context. Um, but we're seeing uh, perhaps a lot uh, in Morocco of what we saw in Egypt, a lot of foreign investment, um, a lot of activity, uh, a lot of people using cell phones, uh, which you recall was interpreted in, in the case of Egypt uh, as evidence of, well, you know, we really don't have to worry about 
ideology, what people think, because, you know, they, they're all on Facebook. They love this stuff. Um, obviously, that was as wrong then as it was in uh, Iran uh, in, in the 1970s. Um, I wonder uh, about Morocco, and with that I will stop. Bill, to you we give the honor of the last speaker of the last panel on the last day of this conference. That's auspicious. Uh, I would like to start by positing that the Arab League has a tremendous opportunity right now, and that opportunity has been given to it almost by the Arab Spring. And I would like to suggest a few ways in which they might uh, take advantage of that new cachet. Let me start by a story. It's related to one of our staff members in Bethlehem. She's 27 years old, and three weeks ago she was driving to our office in East Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, she was driving around a corner and suddenly was confronted by a group of settlers who were all armed with stones, and they began to pelt her car until they shattered all the windows, and she was forced to flee the car and abandon it to the settlers. Uh, Standing right there and doing absolutely nothing were soldiers, Israeli soldiers. And uh, what I would like to do is pose that as a situation that we're going to be confronting in this next year much more so than I would care to think. That we're going to be seeing more and more acts of random violence. And I think partly because we, United States, are in an election year. And there's not too many politicians who are going to stand in and possibly risk anything politically by asking the, the Israelis to restrain the settlers in any way whatsoever. So I would posit to you that we're in a period of time where the Palestinians are going to be more defenseless than ever. And as a result, someone needs to speak for them. Now, granted, on a political scene, when you look at their, their support in the United Nations right now, they have a groundswell in many ways, but inside the West Bank in particular and in Gaza, they feel particularly defenseless. And so I would like to suggest that the international community and the Arab League could be part of their new voice, a voice that speaks up and says to the rest of the world, this violation of human rights cannot go on and someone needs to protect them. Let me suggest a second thing besides protecting them on that level and, and continuing to highlight their defensive position. I'd also suggest that as, as we listen to discussions throughout the day, more and more people were saying, well, we have to look at the long term. Perhaps, perhaps the peace process is dead. Perhaps the United Nations approach is not going to be as effective as we thought. And if those are not, if they do not produce the results that some may be hoping for, then we'll just continue to, to, to look at the long term and hope for the best. But I would suggest to you that we don't have a long term, not in the case of Jerusalem. That Jerusalem will be gone very soon. That week by week, month by month, more and more of the small property of East Jerusalem is being chewed up. And that it, this is something, again, which the international community and the Arab League might be a leader in, a thought leader and someone who provokes uh, or convokes new actions that could be there to develop the West Bank, excuse me, the uh, East Jerusalem. Let me give you an example, for instance. Up until two years ago, Anera was importing approximately $1 million of medicine every year just to two hospitals. 
Two hospitals in East Jerusalem, Mokassid and Augusta Victoria. Two years ago, we were told that's no longer permitted by Israeli authorities because now it's considered inside the wall. And as a result, we cannot do that anymore. Those two hospitals now that were vital institutions for health care in East Jerusalem are now struggling for their very life because they have such huge cost expenditures. And organizations like ANERA can no longer assist them in the ways we had. The same situation goes on with schools in, in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem has several thousand children that have no classroom to go to, and as a result, they have just stopped going. So there is no education for a large number of these children. Again, would it be possible to build new classrooms under a joint initiative? Another aspect is the whole Salah Adin Street, the commercial district. It's slowly withering because tourists can't go there, hotels aren't allowed to really develop, and restaurants aren't allowed to thrive. And there are specific reasons why that's the case. But again, maybe an international approach for commercial revitalization of East Jerusalem and Salah Adin Street are things that could catch fire. It's, it's something that, that could happen by a, a multilateral approach to suggesting an economic rebirth for East Jerusalem. These are some things I would suggest to you, and I would suggest to you that, that the Arab League can be part of the leadership and, and the thought movement in all of this, because it's not going to come from the United States. I think we have to be very realistic about that. We're in a, in a moment right now where Congress is also talking about the possibility of cutting all aid to Palestine, whether it's to the Palestinian Authority or to even the NGOs that are working there and doing projects. If that's the case, then our voice is going to be even less. If we veto in the United Nations, our voice will be even less credible among the Palestinian and the Arab people. And so there's an opportunity, an opportunity for now an organization with a grand tradition, with an articulate and consistent voice, but now with a huge cachet as a result of the Arab Spring that could also lead in new ways in the West Bank and in Gaza. Thank you.